sure whether I should be mildly offended or uh, thankful that I didn't get included in that. In the sheet? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyway. Probably, thank uh, you. can tell Cole did that under duress. Yeah, I can tell that Cole did that <laughs> under duress for sure. That's why there's only two pictures of Cole, <laughs> and there's like a hundred of me. You're chasing him like, around the room, trying to... Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm excited about this, uh, this teaching this morning. I appreciate the, the opportunity. Uh, so let me, let me start out by asking you if you are familiar with any of these things that I'm about to say. Uh, some of you may be, depending on your age, uh, whatever. So you're saying the old people were really should know all these. Somebody told me one time <laughs> that, that the only reason uh, that, that smart people are usually older people, because they just have more experience. The smart the, people. The, the older you are, the smarter you are, yeah. not because necessarily your brain is any different, but you okay. just have more experience. Thank you. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. I'm not old. I'm just really, really <laughs> smart. Someone please tell people around me. When I was growing up, I was fascinated by little tidbits of information. Um, and I tended to believe a lot of things, and, and you might too. So let's, let's, let me just throw a few of these out and see if you've ever heard of any of these. And you can kind of think in your mind whether you thought that was true or, or not. I was told growing up that the Great Wall of China was like the, the only man-made object on the earth that was visible from space. Yeah, I heard that. You remember hearing that? Mm -hmm. um, how about this, that you're not supposed to pick up baby birds that have fallen maybe out of a nest and put them back in the nest because the mother bird will come and smell the baby bird and say, oh, that bird's been held by Harley and, you know, doesn't smell that. like a bird anymore, so we're not going to take care of that bird and the bird will die. Everybody yep. heard, everybody heard that? I heard okay. that. How about this, that um, people in the Middle Ages only lived to be like in their mid-30s. And that the reason that's true is because they didn't know about germ theory. They, they didn't wash their hands, I guess. or They, right. you know, they were, so they they were dirty. Off. They were dirty people. Um, I heard it. This is one of my favorite ones is that your blood is actually blue, like as it's in your veins before it's oxygenated. Yeah, yeah. But when you cut yourself and oxygen hits it, all of a sudden it turns red. Right. Heard that. Yeah. I remember hearing that. Yeah. How about this, that we only use about 10% of our brain. The other 90% is just sitting there. So far, I'm 100% smart. <laughs> I know all these. Okay, now this one, I really, really did believe. And my parents are here today. They told me this. I know that my grandparents told me this. That if you swallow gum, it will stay in your stomach undigested for, I could probably say, I could probably just be quiet and everybody shout it out. Seven years. Yes, and you know why that is, right? Why is that? It's the potting soil for all the watermelon seeds you ate. Oh, that's true. That's true. Good point. That's a good yeah, point. It takes time. To... How about this one? You should know this as a farmer. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I'm in trouble with all the gum and watermelon seeds. How about this one? That Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. I bet yeah. there are probably some of you in here right now that are going, what? Of Thomas Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> I'll see where you're going. <laughs> How about this one, that there's no gravity in space? Uh-huh. Completely devoid of gravity. Yeah, I've seen those guys floating around. So you've heard a lot of these. You might not have heard all of them. But you've been told these things as you were growing up, and maybe you believed them even into adulthood. And you believe them because they they seem plausible. And so we kind of just accept that those things are 
true. And I hate to burst your bubble this morning, but the truth of the matter is, is that none of those statements that I've mentioned so far are completely true. Right. Yeah. Um, but they all sound, use this word again, plausible. Yeah. So if something is plausible, it, it just simply means that, well, you know, it's reasonable. That could happen. I believe that could happen. It's plausible. Um, and once we embrace something that is an explanation for something, and we say, okay, yeah, that's plausible, it is very, very, very difficult to let that explanation go, whether it's true or not. Um, you know, I, I grew up also thinking that you were not supposed to use rice at weddings because the birds would eat it and they would swell up and it would blow them up, right? And then I moved, I believed that until I moved to Stuttgart. (laughs) (laughs) And I said that in public one time and someone pulled me to the side and they said, you know, that's not true, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise there would be no rice birds. That was just a lobby from Big Bird Seed. Big Bird Seed coming in, that's what it was. But, you know, once you embrace something as a reality, as plausible, as a likely explanation, it is so difficult to let that go. It creates kind of a bulletproof narrative, and you just hang on to it. I do, too. We all do. And it's why so many people so easily and readily accept conspiracy theories, because they are plausible. It could happen, right? It could. But this goes way beyond what we're talking about today, way beyond trivial information, because absolutely everything that we hear goes through a filter in our brain, and it's a plausibility filter. And it happens to all of us, whether we realize it or not. We have no idea what's going on. And it's our plausibility filter that, uh, that helps us come to the conclusion of whether we say, yes, that could happen. It could be true. Or we conclude, nah, that can't be. And we throw it out. We all have this filter, and it's developed in us over time. Most often we get this filter from our culture. And our culture is made up of the voices uh, from our parents, from our friends, uh, could be made up from uh, uh, famous athletes and their opinions, uh, actors and actresses and their opinions. We get our filter from what we hear in the news and the media. We get it from songs. Uh, We get it from movies. We get it all over the place. Uh, We can even get it from politicians. And it creates our culture and this filter that just kind of comes to us. Um, And this filter, it tells us that things are acceptable to believe, and it tells us some things are not acceptable to believe. So here's a a rough example of of that. Um, And, you know, our culture would tell us that our pets, our world, our, our culture, yeah, in the United States is pet crazy. So our culture would tell us that pets are valuable. You shouldn't torture your pets. You, know, you should be nice to your pets. So your pets' lives matter. I don't want to torture it. No, you don't want to yeah. torture your pets. Um, that's the, our culture kind of sets that filter, and it operates in the background. We don't even really know that it's going on, but it's there. Um, it just, Here's where things kind of get interesting. The culture can sometimes change what they say is 
plausible and what isn't, what's acceptable and what's not. So let's, we, we all pick on the Nazis, but I guess that's because, you know, it's an easy target. It's an easy target. But way back there, the culture of the, the Nazis, they said, no, all life is not valuable. Um, just some of life is valuable. Only the, the most beautiful, blonde-haired and blue-eyed people are. But if you're, if you're a dark-skinned person, you're not valuable. If you're handicapped, you're not valuable, if mentally or physically. Those lives don't matter as much as the rest of life, the ones that we consider to be acceptable. So we can do whatever we want to with yeah. them. And of course, the six million Jews that they killed. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, not, they said not valuable. Right. So what happened, though, is that's, a, that's an outlier. Most of the world saw that filter, plausibility filter, that, that what they said was acceptable, and they said, no, that's, that's not acceptable. They pushed back hard on that, hard enough that it caused, you know, a world war. Yeah. Um, and you probably sitting there today would agree with the rest of cultures that know what the Nazis did is terrible. And I, I think probably right. so. Absolutely. So in 1967, sociologists came up with a term to help us with what this plausibility filter is. And the term they called it, they said it is a plausibility structure. That is the official term. And they said, and we agree with, every single culture has one. And it may be regional. I mean, the South could have a plausibility structure that is different from uh, California or from the East Coast or from New York City. It can be regional, but every culture has one. It's a plausibility structure that is used to determine what we, as a specific culture, believe is plausible. It could be true, right? So what is believable and what is not? That comes from our plausibility structure. And you might be wondering right about now, why is any of this important? <laughs> And I am so glad you asked that question, because this actually has everything to do with what we choose to believe. And even more importantly than that, it has everything to do with why we believe something. Right. Because in the first century, when Jesus walked on the earth, uh, they had a plausibility structure as well. So for a, a first century Jew, people that lived during the time that Jesus in the area that he lived in, they would have believed and had a plausibility structure that would have said some things like this. What is dead stays dead, right? I mean, they hadn't seen any evidence otherwise, so they, that's what they believed. They would have believed that I have to work hard to earn my place with God. That was what they grew up in. That was the culture that that's what they were taught. The other thing would have been that they believed that the Messiah was going to come and deliver them. The Messiah will deliver us. Um, and these things were, were usually just accepted without argument in their culture. They, they were plausible. And Matthew actually wrote about this, and we can see this uh, part of their plausibility structure in the book of Matthew chapter 16. It says this, that when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and that's a town that's like north of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus and his disciples were, he asked his disciples this very important question. He said, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, the disciples are not aware of this, but the answer that they're about to give 
is showing that they buy into their culture's plausibility structure. They said, some say that you're John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So all of these responses were plausible in their culture um, because they had been taught that something like this, the prophets had alluded that something like this could happen. And so they said, hey, Jesus, you know, people have different ideas, but they say probably the best you can do is that you might be Elijah. But then, and I think this is where it really gets interesting, and that's why I really love this, this teaching today, is that Jesus really drills down on the question with them. And he, he takes it to not just what culture says, but in verse, um, I believe it's verse 15, he says this, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? As if Jesus were to say, okay, okay, I get what the culture says. I get what the word on the street is about who I am. But let me narrow this down to you. Are you simply going to take what culture says is the truth? Or are you going to dig down for what the truth really is? Who do you say that I am? And it's a just a little side note here, but if you've ever been in a crowd where everybody believes one thing and you get really like uh, singled out as to know what do you believe, it can be really, really intimidating. Yeah. It can be really intimidating to be standing there on the opposite side where everybody believes one thing in a disagreement or whatever and you're over here, it's a really lonely place. And you know, they must have been tempted to just kind of go along with what everyone else was saying and what the culture was saying because you know, we know if you disagree, especially today, you might get labeled, you might get canceled, you might be, uh, they might call you naive because they could accuse you of having a blind faith. They're like, no, 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 this is not possible. This is not plausible. This can't be. And so if you believe that, you are just naive. Now, last week we said the only way to really get to know the real Jesus, we said, is to go all in with Jesus. And we said this last week, when we give ourselves fully to Jesus, we can because we know he is going to handle our all very carefully. We can trust him with that. So I don't believe that for us, that there's anything blind about that kind of faith. There's nothing blind about that kind of faith as long as we answer this question. It is not a blind faith if we answer this in question. It is the most important question of your journey and my journey. And it's the same question that Jesus asked his disciples outside of this city. Who do you say that I am? It is the most important question of your life. And I believe Jesus is asking you today, and he's asking me, who do you say that I I believe that to be true. And so I agree, Harley. And I, I love this next part because this is where we get Simon Peter, typical Simon Peter speaking up. Um, whether he thinks about it or not, something's going to come out of his mouth. And he says this in Matthew 16. He says, um, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's a bold, bold answer by Simon to say something like that. And he knew enough to use the correct term. This term 
that had been taught to him since he was a little child. Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah. That has been promised. I believe that you are the one that we have been waiting for. He used that term Messiah. But Peter didn't completely understand what that meant, how that was going to be applied. Because see, Simon and all of the other disciples, their, their, their thought was that the Messiah was more of like a political thing. Um, but the term Messiah was correct. He, he used it correctly. He just had an incomplete view of it. And apparently it was not just something that he grabbed out of thin air. And so here's how Jesus responds in verse 17. He said, Simon Peter, son of Jonas, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Simon, this wasn't just what the culture said was plausible. This is not just you jumping in with the crowd. He said, no, no. My father had to have given this. My father in heaven revealed this to you. Yeah, absolutely. So this was a whole new plausibility structure that he just did not come up with on his own. He's like, yes, you got it, Simon. That is correct. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. He's not just a smart, a smart man, like everyone else is saying, not just a good teacher, not just a prophet. He's not just an Elijah or like an Elijah. He actually is the Messiah. But this is so interesting. See, Simon's plausibility structure, and really not just for him, but for all of the Jewish nation, their plausibility structure had a different idea of what the Messiah was there to do. Their culture believed that the Messiah was there to free them from Roman rule, that he was somehow going to go to battle or be a giant political figure that was going to get them away, Israel, away from their captors, the people who captured them, and, and this Messiah was going to come and finally make things right for the nation of Israel. All the Jews had a plausibility structure, and they were looking for that Messiah. but their plausibility structure would not really let them listen to or believe what the Messiah was really all about. Yeah, you know, even though Jesus himself kept giving them yeah. peeks into the truth, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that he was uh, not giving them the truth. In fact, we have examples of where he did that. And that's recorded in Matthew's gospel in, in chapter 26. And this is, talking about Jesus, and he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to him and said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of men. And over and over again, Jesus, Jesus showed them the truth. Yeah. Sorry, my mouth's dry. Um, but you think I'm here to just free you from Rome? You, you think I'm just here for, for you? No. No, there's, there's so much more to it than that. And you've missed what I've been trying to tell you over and over again. And that's the, you know, what the prophets have been saying. That uh, I'm not here to just free you from Rome. It's bigger than that. I'm here to free from sin. 
That's the message that Jesus was trying to get his disciples to understand. It's the message that he's trying to tell us today. It's not just for Israel. It's bigger than that. I'm here for the entire world. Yeah. See, their plausibility structure that they were operating under, it wouldn't really allow for that because they were looking for a different kind of Messiah. Uh, they, but something did change. This is so important because before Jesus left this earth and, and went to heaven where he is today, before he did, they finally began to understand. They understood more about uh, what God had always planned for this specific Messiah to do. So let me give you a little sneak peek into what, what that looks like and when that happened. This is about 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus. Um, he had died and now he's alive. And the, the plausibility of that structure said that that just wasn't possible. And yet here Jesus is. And, and here's what it says in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 24. He told them, this is talking about Jesus, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be. Everything that I said would happen, it happened. Everything that you were taught about and read about, it happened. And then he opened their minds this is verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand Scripture. He also said to them that it is written the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are my witnesses of these things. So outside the city of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi they answered when Jesus asked this question, with the context of the cultural plausibility structure that they knew. But now, the change has happened. And we see here standing on the side of this mountain weeks after seeing the one who was killed alive again, they finally understand more of what God had planned for the Messiah to do. Yeah. Fact. If it were possible and we could go back in time and allow Jesus to ask that question Again, after that happened, this most important question of all of their lives and all of our lives, the question that says, who do you say that I am? Now that they understood more, I believe their answer would have been much, much different. But here's the point. Who is Jesus? It's the first and the greatest, most important question for them, and it's the most important question for us. It is the most important question for everyone. See, just three years earlier from the moment that Jeremy was just reading about, three years before that, when John the baptizer saw Jesus coming towards him and he said to the crowd, which was huge, he said, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They didn't really understand what that meant then. And they didn't understand what Jesus meant when Jesus said, my blood is going to be poured out for the sins of the world. They didn't understand that because those statements did not fit into their plausibility structure that said, here's what the Messiah is going to be. Therefore, what Jesus was saying, what other people like John said about him, that was not possible because the Messiah can't die. So those things were off the table. They didn't really even consider those things, even though it came out of the mouth of Jesus. But finally, it all made sense. See? 
Everything changed when Jesus walked out of the tomb alive. This, finally, they're getting it. Oh, this is what it means to have this promised Messiah. Not a political savior. Uh, it's rather a sacrifice for the sins of the entire world. And that made Jesus at that time, and now, still today, the only way to God. Right. So now let's jump back quickly to Simon. Because you might be thinking to yourself, but how do you know? How do you know that Simon's plausibility structure, that word we've been throwing around, changed so drastically? How do we know that he went all the way to the other side of the coin? Well, we know because Simon Peter himself told us. He told us in a letter that he wrote that has now become, uh, years ago, became part of Scripture. In, in this letter that he wrote in 1 Peter, he says this. It says, He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds we are healed. Once we were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd the guardian of your soul. Yeah. It's as if Simon is making the grand claim of saying, listen, folks, he is the Messiah. I mean, he's the once and all sacrifice for all the world, for all time. And he would be saying, listen, it's not what I thought. I didn't think that in the beginning. It didn't fit our culture's plausibility structure. But he's saying, I'm telling you, it's true. This is true. The shepherd died for his sheep, just like he said he would. We just didn't hear it. It was there. And I was there for, the, for when it actually happened. My eyes saw it. My ears heard it. And he would even say, I saw him after he walked out of the tomb. Exactly. Over and over and over again, Simon Peter tells us that as an eyewitness, all of these things. He says this again in, in 1 Peter chapter 3. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised up to life in the Spirit. Now, I, I know everything changed because of who you are, Jesus. Everything changed when you walked out of the grave alive. Everything changed for Peter because of those things. He, he goes on, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. Though through Christ, you have come to trust in God, and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. One thing we really, really want you to understand today is this thing about plausibility structures. They are so powerful because without realizing it, they operate under the surface and they are constantly telling us what we can believe, and what we need to reject. So jumping back to the first century very quickly, when Jesus was walking this earth, the plausibility structure said, what is dead stays dead. But then Peter would be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
I saw Jesus alive after he was stone cold dead. So nope, nope, nope. I saw it. That plausibility structure, that's wrong. Yep. And it said that I have to work to earn my place with God. But Simon Peter said, nope. We get a right standing with God because of Jesus and his sacrificial death. Yeah. Their plausibility structure said that the Messiah would come and free them from Rome. Simon Peter says, yeah. Yeah, I thought that too. And Jesus is the Messiah. But my understanding of what the Messiah was, was incomplete. Because Jesus changed it all. But now today in our culture, jumping back into the 21st century, our culture once again says that these things are not plausible. Our plausibility structure today in the 21st century again says what's dead stays dead. And that what's true is only proven true if it's proven by strong empirical data. It says that Jesus was just a historical person. He was a good man. He was a good teacher. He was someone whose life we might want to emulate. But that's all. Yeah. So 2,000 years ago, um, Jesus asked Peter, okay, I'm not talking, he says, about what everyone else is saying, what culture is saying. No, 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 Peter. Who do you believe that I am? Peter, I don't care what culture says. I don't care what your pastor says. I don't care what your parents say, what your grandparents have told you. Simon, Peter, who do you believe that I am? Now, this was a long time ago. And honestly, though, today, this very moment, our plausibility structure says that none of this really matters. But I'm telling you it does. Your answer to that very same question that Jesus asked Peter, your answer to that question, it matters. Really, it matters more than anything else. What do I believe about who Jesus said, says he is? That matters. What you believe, it matters. Because his death and his resurrection still changes everything today. What was not possible, because Jesus came back from the grave alive, suddenly it became possible. There it goes, you got it. That often gets uh, passed over. We actually read this earlier. Um, in the teaching, but Jesus was speaking to his followers and he was giving them um, what we've come to know as the Great Commission, his Great Commission, where he told them to go and tell. Listen to this in Luke chapter 24. He says in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Jesus told his followers that they were witnesses to everything that he did. Um, and, and they bore witness to this, that Jesus had died, that now he was alive again. They knew it, not just because they had heard it on the street, not from hearsay. They knew it because Jesus, after he died and was alive again, he walked with, he ate with, he hung out with, face-to-face, life-on-life with many, many people. And they were all eyewitnesses to the resurrected, living, breathing Jesus who walked 
out of the tomb alive, something that had never happened before. So God's plan that seemed implausible is now very plausible. Yeah. And because of that, they actually wrote this down. And so this is no different than anything that we have in history that uh, our culture's plausibility structure says is A-OK. We can accept that. In other words, how do we know uh, what George Washington did? How do we know that today? We've never met him. We've never seen him. We don't know anyone personally who does know him. We can know it because the people who were around him wrote it down. They listened to him and they recorded it for us. They saw his life. They wrote it down. How do we know what George Washington looked like? We've never seen it because someone close to him had him hold still for just long enough that they painted a picture. That's how we know. How do we know that Julius Caesar um, was actually uh, assassinated and he was stabbed 23 times by members of his own Senate? How do we know this? We know this because they wrote it down. People who were there wrote it down and it's part of the historical record. They saw it. They wrote it down. Since our, our culture that we live in now, the plausibility structure, has no problem in our culture today accepting Jesus as a historical person. But just like in the first century, when they believed that, well, yeah, yeah, he's a good person, but there's no way that he could be anything beyond Elijah, you know, or a prophet. Today, it's very similar. They're saying, yeah, 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 he's historical, but there's no plausible way that he really did those things that the eyewitnesses say that he did. Which might be a reason, possibly, why we find that Paul included a statement like this in his letter to the church in Corinth. He said, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed to destruction. In, order, in other words, they say, this is not plausible. This couldn't have happened. But then he goes on to say, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. See, we know it's plausible. Because those people saw it and they wrote it down and they have told us about it. And we also know it's plausible because we ourselves are being changed by him every day. What are others saying about who Jesus is today? Well, today's culture, the plausibility structure today says he was a real person. He was a good teacher, a good person, a moral change agent. Uh, some might even say, go as far to say that he was a prophet. And as we look at all of these answers, even among churches today, we find out if we go by the plausibility structure, he's more like maybe a divine butler, maybe even a cosmic therapist. But if that's what we buy into, and we say, yes, that's plausible, that's possible, that must be what it is, then all of that leads to that boredom we talked about in January, that disillusionment, that disappointment with this whole Christian thing. And it gives us this insatiable desire to look for the next big thing. In other words, I'll take some of Jesus, plus I need to add something to it to make it better. Now that's what they say is plausible. 
That's the word on the street about Jesus today. But who do you say that he And I truly believe this. He wants to know. What do you say? That's the question that we're asking you this week to wrestle with. For real. We're at, that's the next step. Wrestle with this question. Jesus wants your answer. Because this G, Jimmy Fallon type Jesus that everybody likes and, and, and this, this kind of soft Jesus that doesn't ask you for your life as a living sacrifice, this American version of Jesus that only asks you to toss him just a little bit of floss and he'll be okay with that, that kind of Jesus, that's not Jesus. So this is so important. The most important question, the starting question, he wants to know, who do you say Jesus is? Because your answer to that question means everything, everything. You know what else it means? It means everything changes. Your answer to that question changes everything. Or your answer to that question, it changes nothing. And nothing changes. I'm going to close with a quote. I'm going to simply read it. And then I'm going to pray. But here's what we're asking you this week. Will you decide who do you say that Jesus is? Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend it. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would wrestle with this most important question this week. And in doing so, may we get to the heart of this whole thing. Jesus, we really want to get to your heart. May we answer this question this week. Were you just a good man? Because if you were, that really doesn't change anything. It certainly is not enough to change me. Or Jesus, are you the Son of God? The Messiah who came to die for the sins of the world. God, our answer to that question, it means everything. And God, I know for me, I declare in my life 
that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that changes everything. But God, if you're just a good man, it changes nothing. And nothing changes in our lives. God, help us to wrestle with this question this week. In the name of Jesus, Yeshua, you who are the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. May we wrestle with that this week. Pray these things. Amen.